First Samuel 6, 7, God says that man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Those of you who have gotten a, a letter from a loved one whom you haven't seen in a long time may understand this. Uh, now, now I, I, I recognize that for some of us it's been a long time since we actually gotten a, a letter from someone. Um, back in the day, you had to wait a few days. And then this thing called an envelope would come in something called a mailbox. And uh, if it was from a loved one and you weren't, maybe it was early in the relationship, maybe you even smelled that envelope, you know, might there be a little perfume smell to it? You know, we don't get that with emails these days, do we? And then you, you poured over the words and you looked for what was the... What was the heart behind these words? Maybe you've read it a few times. Um, Trying to discern maybe the motivation and the heart meaning. Well, today I'd like for us to look for the heart behind the letter. You know, it's easy as we we get towards the end of this, uh, this letter that Paul wrote several thousand years ago to a church in Rome where he had never actually been. Uh, easy maybe for us to think, hey, we've gotten through all the meat now. Uh, you know, we've gotten through, the, through the, this amazing unpacking of the gospel and all this great teaching on Christian unity. And now we're here at the end as he kind of gives some more logistical kinds of stuff. And, and next, in the next chapter 16, we're going to see all kinds of greetings. Um, and believe it or not, we're going to spend a little bit of time looking in some of these greetings because there's things to be learned even there. Every word of God is inspired and is applicable and practical to our, to our lives as, as Christians. Um, but today I want us to look beyond the logistics of the letter to see the heart of Paul. And so three points and then a very long application um, for us. Um, <clears throat> so be warned. But the first point we're going to look at is Paul's heart. For the unreached. Look at verse 22, as, as my, my brother Ken just alluded to. Um, he's looking back to the context, the verses before, but where, where Paul says, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Now, you know, remember, this is a letter that Paul wrote to a church where he had longed to go and visit for years. Uh, at one point, he had made it all the way up to. To modern-day Croatia, you know, what used to be Yugoslavia, right across the, the sea from Italy. And maybe, maybe he looked with longing towards the capital of the world, longing to go and, and proclaim the gospel there too. But knowing that the gospel had made it there. There was a church in Rome, and he had to get to these, these places where the, where the gospel hadn't yet been. But when he, at the very beginning of, this, of his gospel in verse 13 of chapter 1... Paul writes, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. And so now, at the very end of this letter, he explains exactly what that reason was. And we looked at this last month before Christmas in late November, when we looked at verse 19 through 21 of chapter 15. Where, where Paul says, from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum. That's that desolate, rugged, 
Roman province back in the day, which would be the area of the world that, that, uh, that we would consider former Yugoslavia, Croatia, Serbia, that area. All the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So Paul here is recounting 10 years of pioneering missions work. Uh, And so... Um, Paul is, is talking here about his heart. He has to get to the gospel to the unreached first, and then he can visit Rome. And we're going to see in a little while, he had a very strategic reason for wanting to visit the imperial capital of Rome. Now, interestingly enough, at least to me, um, the specific focus on the unreached was not specifically mandated in Paul's call to ministry. If you go back in Acts chapter 9, you know, we might think, well, some people, they're kind of weird, but they're called to go to unreached people groups, okay? God must have given Paul that specific calling when he called him to ministry. But actually, go back and look at Acts chapter 9, when God is is calling Paul. You remember, he's on the road to Damascus, and the vision, and then God calls Ananias to, to go and, and heal Paul from his blindness. And, Paul, and God says to Ananias in verse 15 of Acts chapter 9, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So part of Paul's calling was to go and to, to speak to Jews and to Gentiles and to kings, and specifically to suffer. Let's not forget that. Um, we American Christians know little and like even less the concept of suffering for the kingdom, suffering for Jesus Christ. Well, that suffering was part of Paul's calling. In fact, Providentially, that was how Paul was going to have his audience with kings, because of, because of suffering. But you know, I don't see a specific mission to those who've never heard in that calling, although Gentiles probably fits the bill. A lot of them had not yet heard. But the unreached were near to Paul's heart. He wondered, you know, how can I expend my effort? on places where there's already gospel witness, where there are all these regions where thousands of people are perishing, never having the chance to hear the gospel. Where there's hope, but they don't know it yet. I've got to get it there first before I go and build on another man's foundation. So Paul's heart was drawn to the unreached because his heart was motivated by the Great Commission. Now, when you hear Great Commission, you often think end of Matthew, right? Matthew 28. Well, guess what? There's another place where we read about words of Christ, the last words of Christ when he gave his commission. And that's in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus said, But you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so Paul had a, uh, just a heart to, to get it done, to obey Christ's commission to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now when we read this kind of thing, um, it's, it's easy for us to kind of think, well, I get a pass. You know, I, I'm not called to missions. Uh, I'll give to missions work, but I, 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 you know, I live here in Niceville, Florida. There's no unreached people groups here. So I'll let the missionaries do that. I'll give my money to Lottie Moon, by the way, great job, um, uh, giving way beyond our, our, um, our target. I don't even know, Lynn, where we are on that, but maybe next week we'll let you know. Um, I just know we're well beyond the target goal that we had. So praise God for that. Let's do give to the unreached, but let's do beyond that. If, 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 if those living beyond understanding of the gospel is on Paul's heart, it also ought to be on ours. So who might live on your street who maybe they live in a Christian land where they could certainly flip on their TV or their radio and, and hear a sermon, but maybe just because of their life experience, they've never had the chance to really understand the truth of the gospel. Maybe they've been put off by a materialistic, false veneer of Christianity, but they've never really come to understand or, or hear the true gospel message that is all about a cross and death to self and, and life towards God in the Spirit. Maybe they've never heard that message. So who is that on your, on your block? Or maybe in a cubicle not far from yours. Who, who do you have a relationship with who has a little understanding of the gospel? Maybe you actually have a, a close relationship with someone who doesn't really understand the gospel. The, the heart of Paul is, that's not okay. Like, you got to help them understand the gospel, and certainly you need to live it out for them. I mean, they've got to see consistency in your life. If they don't see authenticity, they're not going to listen to your words, right? So you got to Show the love of Christ in your attitudes. And, and that might be hard. It might be hard in a relationship that you've got. But who do you have that? Are you praying for that person? Are you seeking to, to reach him? Who could you reach out to and build a relationship with whom you don't have a relationship with who needs that kind of understanding of the gospel? Maybe you need to start with an intentional relationship, reaching out to somebody who's hurting and who needs to understand that we are all sinners, every one of us. There is none righteous, no, not one. You and me in this room, we are no better left to ourselves than the vilest sinner you can think of. None of us. We are all in the same boat, depraved, dead in our sins, unable to even grab that that life ring, right? We need the lifeguard to grab us and to breathe new life into us because we, we were all in that place. And yet God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And, and, and maybe there's somebody that you need to reach out to intentionally and, and build a relationship with so you can share that good news of the gospel. What about, 
what about people here in our community from other countries? Maybe you've been in Destin at the Commons and you've passed a woman wearing a hijab or a headscarf. You've realized, hey, that's a Muslim family. How did you react in your heart to, to her, to them? Did you have some kind of a, of a Christian nationalistic reflex where you, where you kind of wanted to kind of look the other way or push them away in your heart or say, hey, go back to your country? I hope not. Or did your heart reach out to them in love? Did you think, how awesome you're here. I hope you get a chance to hear the gospel from somebody. Maybe it's beyond your ability right then to share with them, but did you pray for their salvation? Give them a smile, show them a little bit of kindness or love and a hope that maybe you could start a conversation with them. Well, Paul's heart for the unreached is for us as well. Number two, we see here, not only Paul's heart for the unreached, but we see his heart for the church in verse 23 and 24, specifically for the church at Rome, where he wanted to go and where he wanted to actually recruit them into being a supporting church of his. He was actually looking to raise, we would say in today's missionary parlance, financial support or partnership with the church in Rome. And that was one of the key reasons he wrote this book, this, this whole letter that we've been studying for the last year and a half. So let's look at verse 23 and 24. He writes, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, several, several things that we see here in these, uh, in these words. First of all, we see the importance of partnerships between churches even in sending out missionaries. You know, Paul didn't have only one church that sent him out. Now, now you could argue that the mothership was the church in Jerusalem. Several times in Paul's ministry, we read, if you look at the book of Acts carefully, uh, he actually does go back and, and visit and, and even submit to the church in Jerusalem. But that's not the church that actually commissioned him, laid hands on him, and sent him out to be a missionary. It was actually the church in Antioch, Syrian Antioch, uh, where Paul had served faithfully for years. We read in Acts chapter 13 that that was his actual home church that laid hands on him and sent him out to be their apostle. Actually, he was a big A apostle. Today, we don't have capital A apostles. We have little a apostles, meaning sent ones or missionaries, those that are, that are called out and commissioned by a church who knows them well and, and sent to take the gospel to where it does not exist or where it is weak and it needs strengthening to go and to plant churches among the unreached and the underreached. So we see a partnership here. We've got Antioch, you've got Jerusalem, but also here we see his desire for the church at Rome to help him get to the outer rim of Spain. So Paul has now decided that though he hasn't vill- uh, reached every single village in Asia Minor or 
in Europe, in, in, in southeastern Europe, okay, that this whole area, this region that he'd been working in for 10 years. Modern day Turkey is Asia Minor. Um, he had not reached every village, but he had been to all of the, the main cities, all of the places, and there were strong enough churches now to where it was radiating out. And, and people were reaching, others were reaching the hamlets. So he says, hey, I don't have any more reason, I don't have any more room to work in this area. I want to get to Spain, the outer rim of the Roman world. So Paul still has this pioneering spirit, but you know, he wants this church in Rome to partner with him, to, to help him. Uh, and he makes it very clear there, I want to be helped on my journey there by you. And, and certainly he wanted their prayers and he needed their financial support. But you know, likely Paul wanted to pick up some new teammates. Team was very important to Paul. He wasn't a lone ranger. We read throughout the book of Acts. He always had people working with him, a team close by. And it's likely he was looking to recruit a bigger team from Rome to go with him to Spain. And, I, you know, I can, I can tell you from experience how encouraging it can be. Sometimes when you go off um, to the far other parts of the world, there may be, you may have a, a home church that is your mothership. Okay, that has laid hands on you and sent you out. But it can be very encouraging to have a church that's a little bit closer to where you're serving, where you can come out when you're, when you're worn out and you're beat up and you just need to lick your wounds a little bit. Uh, and for them to also be partners in the task. I remember serving um, back in the 90s in Mozambique. And, and Dr. Woodrow, the missionary surgeon I was working with, he had a long-term relationship with a church in Johannesburg, South Africa, Emmanuel Baptist Church. And these people understood hospitality. We would come down, he would usually travel down once, maybe twice a year. Uh, it would take him about a week to drive down there from where we were in northern Mozambique over just some rough, rough roads. Um, if, if you could even make it from straight north to the south, if you could cross the, the, um, the uh, Zambezi uh, safely, um, uh, which was a question. People got eaten by hippos, no kidding. Uh, right there. Uh, uh, ferry boat sunk several times. It was, I mean, if it was even passable, it would take a week. Uh, otherwise, you'd have to go around through, through Zambia and, and Malawi, down through Zimbabwe. And it took about, that one, that trip took about nine days. So you get there just totally shattered. And, and this church just provide hospitality and, you know, go out to restaurants and resupply and get your medical stuff taken care of. And it was such a joy to sit there and hear the gospel in, in English, I still remember Pastor Glendon Thompson from Jamaica, just an amazing pastor of this church. Um, well, they were, they were very much part of keeping Charles and keeping me during the two years I worked with him going. So there's partnership between churches and, and sending and supporting missionaries, and we do that today, do we not? We've got missionaries with us. By the way, Danny and Casey Bristol, it's great to have you guys with us. Um, praise God. And you know, Danny, here's an example. Church in Texas that actually sent them out, but we're a, we're a partnering church, praying for them, helping support them. Um, and, and I'm sure you guys are, are getting to know other people, maybe churches even closer to you that, that are also a part of your mission. And so secondly, I see there's an importance of a, of a strong relationship between the missionary and the churches that send them out. Now, Paul is trying to be proactive here in, in, as he writes this, this letter. And, 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 and so we see there is responsibility on the missionary's part. 
to helping maintain this. Communication is, is important. Spending, spending time with your church when you come back is important. And, and man, it's been great to have the, the wilds with us uh, this last year. Uh, they have gone and visited other churches, but most of their time, even during this difficult COVID pandemic, has been with us and spending time with, with us. And, and, and it's been a blessing for me, and I know a blessing for you to have the Douglas family with us these last couple months. Wasn't their original plan A, but the Lord and his sovereignty brought them here to be with us for a time, and we love you guys, and it's a joy to spend time with you. We are blessed to have you with us. So I'm so glad you guys didn't end up in like, you know, Birmingham or Atlanta or somewhere else to get your medical stuff taken care of, that you came here. And I know you took great, you made great effort to do so. And so we thank you for that. You know, so it, it's a responsibility of our missionaries when we send them out to spend time with us and to, to allow the us to be a part of their, of their work by communicating well. But it's also a huge responsibility on the part of the, the sending church and the supporting church. And that's one reason that we as a church have a, a, a kind of a philosophy, as it were, to maximum support to limited numbers of missionaries. What, what I mean by that is some, some churches, uh, it looks great. You may, you may feel great about yourself. Some churches will take like, you know, 50 missionaries and give them all 100 bucks each a month. 200 bucks each a month or something like that. Looks wonderful on the map in the hall. Look at what we're doing. But here's what happens. If you're a missionary and you've got to go to 50 churches, there's no way you can foster that kind of relationship. Okay? And, and it's, a, it's a huge commitment. We as a church have sent out or, or support. We either have as, we're either the sending or the supporting church for 19 missionary families. And, and I, I think we're figuring it out. To, to do this well, to do this right, requires all hands on deck holding the ropes to support them well. So when they come back with big medical needs, we're ready to, we got a care team ready to go to help, right? To, to, be, to really maintain prayer, to have a life group assigned that is, that is really holding the ropes in prayer, sending, sending packages of encouragement, maybe even visits down the road. It's a big commitment. It's, it's not something that just the, the missionary team or the missions team can handle. It's something that all of us have to have a, a part of. And we have to protect these relationships. And you know, every month I'll get or, or mission team will get a, a note from somebody uh, asking for support. And, and it'd be easy to delude our relationships and our capacity by saying, sure, yeah, we'll give you 100 bucks. We'll give you 200 bucks. But instead, we're trying to give maximum support to a limited number of missionaries that we can send well and have a true relationship with. So what I want you to see here is that our, our values, even our strategy for sending out and supporting missionaries come from Paul's example, his personal example. That is prioritizing the unreached, focusing our efforts, not exclusively, but focusing our efforts on church planting and sending the proven. And so sometimes I, I, I'll have a, a, a um, wannabe missionary reach out to me, um, or, or uh, there are some here within our body I know that I'm excited that you are praying about future missionary service. And, and, and I give the same advice, and that is go deep 
in relationship with your church family. It's worth investing years getting to know your church well, them getting to know you well, so that they can indeed, or we can indeed, send out the proven. So Paul had a great heart for the unreached. He had a a huge heart for the church. He recognized that that the church was central to the work of missions. That is such an important point for, boy, a lot of our younger missionary crowd to remember it. It's a sad fact. You know, um, there are, I, I talk with young people wanting to go to the mission field who really have no relationship, no accountability with the sending church. And, and sadly, there are missionaries, especially with the IMB, who have been out there for decades who sometimes don't have much of a relationship with their sending church. And, and, you know, maybe the pastor has moved on or there's been enough attrition in the church where they don't even know they're sending church heartily. I've, I've met missionaries who didn't even come back to a fixed place for furlough. Um, they didn't even feel like they needed to come back to their church, the church that sent them out. They're like, well, hey, I, I saw there's a house available in California with a swimming pool, so we're going to go there. All right, that, that happens over time. And so we've got to work hard to, to support our missionaries well and to keep these relationships strong. But we also see here in this text, in verse 25 through 29, Paul's heart for the poor. Now, Paul has actually been working on a contribution for the poor Christians in Jerusalem for some time now. Probably, honestly, for several years. And he's, he's been writing other um, wealthier churches, Gentile churches in Asia Minor and Europe, asking them to work on a contribution for the poor saints in Jerusalem, for their, for their Jewish brothers and sisters. And, and so look at, if you will, you can look at this in the, worship, in the, in the reading guide in your, in your um, bulletin, or you can turn there with me if you like. But 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1 through 4. Um, interesting here, at the very end of this first letter to the Corinthians, and actually, um, uh, first, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 are really all about this contribution as well. Okay? But here's what he writes to the Corinthians. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also... They will accompany me. So Paul's very direct to the Corinthian believers that they are to start working on this collection. And and this, by the way, was was well before he wrote the letter to the Romans. By this point, he had decided he was going. He was going to take this collection. This is probably a significant, significant amount of money that Paul is going to actually be the courier of back to Jerusalem. So look at verse 25 with me, if if you will. Back to Romans chapter 15. And, and I, I just have to say that I, I love it how um, there's kind of a, a mixture here of free will and um, compulsory offering going on here in the way Paul talks to them about um, this. You know, I mean, he, he does, <laughs> this isn't exactly a soft sell here, all right? Look at verse 25. 
At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So I don't know if you cut all that, but it's a request, but it's, it's also kind of a, you know, he's, he's twisting their arm pretty hard here, saying you owe it to them. Okay, the, the, you know what? You, you get the spiritual benefits that God had promised the Jews from long ago of their, of their Jewish Messiah, who has now come to be your Savior as well. And Jewish missionaries like me have brought the gospel to you. You owe it to them to help them physically. Well, I see two things going on here. One, I, I see a, and this is the more overt, and then the, the second, second thing I see going here, I think is implicit. But we see first that ministry to the poor is important. In fact, we Christians who are blessed with great material wealth and resources need to see that ministry to the poor is part of our worship of God. So last week, uh, actually yesterday, I got to read a book um, uh, called A Little Book for New Theologians by Kelly Capick. He's a um, professor of, of theology at Covenant College. Um, I really like the fact that it was called A Little Book. Uh, it was short, and it was very, very sweet. And one of his points he makes, one of his chapters really, is on the, the, the ministry to the poor. How that is actually needs to be part of our theology. Not just seen as, oh yeah, yeah, we, we do that a little bit on the side. But this should be, this is a part of Christian theology. Here are several things that he writes. One of the greatest theological challenges of our time is to move our worship beyond self-absorption. This takes us back to Feuerbach's critique of religion, that we religious folks are, in the end and at the start, concerned only with ourselves. He continues later in his book, Entering into the world of those who suffer inevitably brings sweet sweat, tears, dirt, and sacrifice. Let me just stop for a minute. That is so true. Um, it's one thing to just give money to somebody or to a cause, you know, to an organization that's helping people. But when you get involved in ministry to the hurting, it, it's hard. I mean, plan on tears. And blood and sweat, because that's what's going to happen. There's often not easy, quick fixes. The paradox here, continue to let Dr. Capick uh, have his voice. The paradox here is that unless we get involved in the messiness and brokenness of others, we risk becoming stained by the world we seek to avoid. We respond to Jesus' call to purity. Not by ignoring or retreating from the sin and suffering of the world, but only by conforming, I'm sorry, only by confronting the sin, loving those who suffer and watching God's grace bring healing and hope among, amidst the grief, loneliness, and pain. 
John 17, 15 through 19, 1 Corinthians 1, 25 through 31, Philippians 2, 15. There somehow seems to be a connection between compassion for those in need and our understanding of God's relationship to us. Active concern for the poor and needy is a core concern of our theology. He also writes, a theology that contemplates Jesus will always be mindful of the depth of our own needs. And that should prompt us to remember the poor. Not as an optional extra, but as a central aspect of our theological knowledge. End quote. So Paul clearly had a heart for the poor, and, and he saw ministry to the poor, that is, giving, helping them physically their material needs, right, as part of his worship of God. Now, it is certainly not the totality. Um, you know, riding a bike, trying to raise money for wells in Africa uh, is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just need to say that. People need the gospel message above all but they need to see us caring for their physical needs so they can believe that we truly care for their spiritual needs. Jesus ministered to people's physical and spiritual needs. He preached and he healed together and he commanded his disciples to do the same when he sent them out. But I see something a little beyond that going on here, okay, with this particular offering for the poor among the Jews. I think... I, I see here Paul's heart for unity between the Gentile and the Jewish church. We've been reading in Romans as we've been studying at, at great depths um, Paul's admonition to the church in Rome that was ethnically divided and culturally divided between the Jews and the Gentiles. And this was going on, we see this in a number of his letters, where you have you know, customs and issues of the ceremonial law and meat eaters versus vegetarians, and circumcision versus non-circumcision, and all these things going on that were, were creating a cultural divide in the church. Moreover, when you read the book of Acts, you realize when, in, in Acts 20, when, when Paul actually makes it to Jerusalem, James tells him, and I'm sure Paul already knew this, hey, listen, we, we've actually had a flourishing. We've had thousands of Jewish believers come to know Christ, come to believe in their Messiah, but there's an obstacle here. They, they hear that you're out there, you know, dissing Moses and the law. And so Paul was, was trying to help bridge the divide so that Christ would unify Christians from diverse cultural backgrounds, Jews and Gentiles. And what greater way to further relations between these churches who are divided culturally or to help build unity in Christ than to bring a great, powerful, tangible expression of love from the Gentiles to the Jews. He knew it would be best for both. That's why he, didn't, he had no problems or qualms strong-arming the Gentiles, saying, hey, you know I, know, I know about the balance in your bank account. You know, I want to see checks equivalent, right? Fill up the coffers. We're going to help our Jewish brothers out. Because he could then bring that to the Jews and say, stop hating on your Gentile brothers. And he's actually blessing the Gentiles by helping further a unified church. Does that make sense? Now, here's the question for us. Should we today in Niceville, Florida, be happy with our culturally and ethnically separated churches 
Or should we do all in our own power to reach out at every appropriate turn and seek unity together in Christ? I'm still trying to figure out what all that means. How, how to do that, right? But, but I need to get to know, I need to get to know the Korean church over in Valparaiso. Some of my African-American pastors that I don't really know. Because there's one Lord, one Savior, one God and Father, right? And, and Christ is what unites us. So let's, let's have that heart at least. Let's start with that heart at least for unity. And let's always be sure to remember the poor. Okay, so here's the long approach as we land the plane that I promised for you. Okay, and here's, and I'll, let me start it with a question. All right, we've talked about Paul's heart. We've talked about Paul's heart for the unreached, his heart for the poor, his heart for the church, the unity of the church across ethnic lines. What about your heart and my heart today? What about our hearts uh, today in the light of last week even and last year? Well, I'd like to warn you, brothers and sisters, against the siren of Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism is the opposite of all of the points of this sermon. It doesn't have a heart for the unreached. It doesn't really care about churches from other cultures. And it doesn't really care either, frankly, for the poor or the underdog. Now, I think it's important that we understand what we're talking about here when I say Christian nationalism because different people mean different things and, and certainly uh, there are plenty of folks plenty of liberals who would accuse me of being a Christian nationalist okay because I do believe that that we as Christians should be good citizens and that we should vote that we should make a stand for Christ in our in our culture that we should do in our power in our power to legally uh, encourage laws that respect the Bible okay I, I'm delighted when I see nativities uh, in public uh, I'm encouraged when I see steeples in towns where people come and worship Jesus, all right? Some would say that's being a Christian nationalist, and I would submit to you that it is not, okay? Christian nationalism doesn't mean simply being a good citizen, but what it does, and it's really an attitude, maybe, more than a dogma, but Christian nationalism confuses loyalty to the gospel of Christ and the spiritual kingdom of God with bringing about a physical, political, Christian kingdom now in which Christians sit at the top of the political and physical totem pole. This is, like I said, an attitude. If you're wondering, well, am I a Christian nationalist? Maybe a good diagnostic question would be, do I get more excited about political wins or about gospel wins, about souls being saved? Which, which, which gives me more of a spring in my step. Christian nationalism is entirely selfish. It wants to be on top. It wants to be served. It craves, at the end of the day, power. Now, Christian nationalism is certainly not unique to the United States of America. You can go way back in history. Look at the Holy Roman Empire which, as historians will tell you, was not holy. <laughs> it wasn't even Roman. 
and it ceased to be an empire. And actually, it set the stage by the endemic corruption that it brought for the advancement and the flourishing of Islam throughout formerly Christian lands, such as Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, which used to be the center of Christianity. Today, it's, it's, it, historically, it's been the center of Islam until about 100 years ago. North Africa, the Middle East, these places where the gospel once flourished became weak because of Christian nationalism. And that created this, this petri dish, this place for Islam to come into. Okay? So that when the Muslims came into cities like, like, uh, cities like Alexandria, the, the locals opened up the gates and said, please come in. Life was better for, for them than it had been under their Byzantine, quote-unquote, Christian overlords. You can look back to the Middle Ages in which Christian nationalists burned the reformers at the stake. Christian nationalism was behind the persecution in England that, that led to the pilgrims coming to America for freedom to worship God according to their conscience. Christian nationalists were the ones who were enforcing the racist apartheid policies of South Africa up until the 90s. So Christian nationalism is certainly not an American thing, but Christian nationalist sentiment has a stronghold in America. And Christian nationalism easily gives way to the cult of personality. That, what, what I mean by that? Well, that's that Faustian deal where you say to someone who is powerful, maybe unrighteous, but powerful, and is, is willing to make a deal with you, where you say, I will give you my undying loyalty no matter what you do in return for your protection. Remember, the enemy of the enemy is not always the righteous. Stalin was the enemy of Hitler. I thought that Dr. Al Mohler gave a very good um, perspective and review of the horrific events that happened on Wednesday as we saw mobs uh, attack our Capitol building uh, and overrun it, injuring and, and uh, causing the deaths of five people, uh, at least, as far as I know. Um, Dr. Mueller wrote this about Christian nationalism and specifically about the dangers of the cult of personality. And I just encourage you to Go back and check it out. If you haven't had a chance to listen to it, I encourage you as you try to kind of digest and, and, and think about these complex events of this last week and that we're going through right now. Um, I thought this is very good perspective. So it, this was morning of Thursday, uh, January the 7th. And I don't have time to read. It was a 25-minute monologue he gave. Let me just read you two paragraphs. He says, There are several worldview dimensions for our urgent Christian concern here. And Christians must understand we're obligated to try to think biblically about this and to understand what is at stake. For one thing, we understand the danger of a dictatorship or an autocracy. We also come to understand the danger of a personality cult. Much about that in just a moment. But what we need to recognize is that the American experiment in constitutional self-government coming right down to a separation of powers and even the constitutional debate in the 1780s about the office of president recognized the likely danger of an individual who had come to power 
who would find it very difficult to relinquish power or who might try to upend the constitutional order. Lord Acton, the political The British political theorist and statesman put this best when he reminds us that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's just another way of affirming the Christian and biblical doctrine of original sin and total depravity. This is the way that sin works. And what we saw yesterday is that the American experiment, our commitment to ordered liberty was indeed tested. It was tested with sights that we never expected to see in the nation's capital. We saw the capital building itself invaded, as it were, by American citizens, carrying political paraphernalia and signs and banners that had the name of an individual upon them. And that turns out to be more crucial than even most in the media have noted. The greatest danger to the American experiment is a cult of personality. Not a conflict of policy and principles, but rather a cult of personality. And a cult of personality reveals itself by the fact that the person, rather than the principles and policy, becomes the issue. And in this case, the person becomes what can only be described as a cult. Brothers and sisters, remember that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So even as we process these things, um, uh, only the Lord can see the, the bedrock of our heart. But what is there? As you can best tell. You know, the heart is deceitful, right? Uh, who can know it, Jeremiah says. So it's hard to know our own hearts sometimes. But as you can best discern, with the Holy Spirit's help, what is there? Is it pride? Do you want to win at all costs? Or is it Humility. Remember, brothers and sisters, truth and integrity must be our watchwords. Let me be specific. If if we Christians are against and have stood against or spoken against rioting in our cities by the Black Lives Ladder movement, we better stand strong and unequivocally against lawless rioting in our nation's capital against our own capital building that represents all of us. Otherwise, we have no integrity. How can anybody listen to us as we talk about Jesus if if we're willing to give up our integrity for strategy, maybe? Because we want to win. Brothers and sisters, beware conspiracy theories. Beware going to dark corners of the web to get your information. Is there much to be skeptical of in, the, in the, the media today? Absolutely. But you know what? There's even more to be skeptical of in the dark, these dark places where, where there's conspiracy theories, where people can say anything without any checks and balances, right? Be very, very careful, brothers and sisters, what you forward on social media. If you don't know it's true, if you can't verify it's true, be very careful, what you forward. And if you do, if you've sent something out that someone sent you, maybe you trusted them and so you sent that out not knowing if it was really true or not. And, and you've done that and then you find out that, hey, actually that wasn't factual. Okay? You, you have an obligation to, to um, go back and to say that was wrong. I'm sorry. I've learned that that was not true. 
Do not create or live in alternate realities, in a, in a place where, where you know, beware of, of making what you want to believe is true, your truth. And the reason I say that is truth matters. Jesus said, I am the truth. Therefore, we, we Christians must stand for absolute truth, and we lose our credibility when we bend the truth because we just don't happen to like what that truth may be. You know, Christians must care more about their witness for Christ than their political power. I read a book this last week, among many that I had to read for this um, doctoral seminar on leadership. It's written by a Catholic guy named Drucker, who threw out a, a, a term that says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Here's what he meant. Uh, in in, in the, the leadership world, the business world, um, there's a lot of talk these days about strategy. And I believe in strategy. In fact, I, I, I believe that uh, lawfully we should do all in our power, lawfully, to, to um, try to stem the tide of wicked agendas. Okay? Um, I voted against the, as many liberal agendas as I possibly could. Right? I believe that we, we need to do everything we can legally to, to, um, to have godly, as godly laws as possible in our, in our land. But, but Drucker's talking about strategy and, and culture, and his point in, in, in the business setting is that, that culture is more important. It eats strategy for breakfast. And I'm going to just replace that word culture, culture with integrity. Brothers and sisters, integrity eats strategy for breakfast. And my, my prayer is that we Christians will not lose our integrity because whatever may come i want us to be able to stand up in the public space and proclaim that jesus is lord and not be seen as hypocrites self-serving hypocrites jesus said my kingdom is not of this world well brothers and sisters there is hope there is great hope for us because one day jesus will come back and his kingdom will be of this world Right now, his kingdom is growing as it, as it spreads in hearts of men and women to every tribe and culture and people. That's how his kingdom is spreading. And oftentimes, his, his kingdom spreads through oppression and, and persecution. And I don't want that to come here. In fact, I'm not looking forward to what I think. There, there are wicked agendas that, that want to take away our freedom of speech. We must do our best to, again, legally hang on to that. But above all, we, more important than that is to be able to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so if persecution comes to me because I can't in good conscience marry two dudes, so be it. I have to stand on the word of God. But I'm not willing to sacrifice my integrity to try to... to, to um, keep myself from future pain. One day, he will come back. That is where our hope is. But until then, the scriptures tell us how to live. Micah 6, 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Paul writes the Thessalonians, living under far less just laws than we have, laws of Roman rule. Paul writes the Thessalonians, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. 
But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you. And Paul wrote, um, or I'm sorry, not Paul, but Peter wrote the church in Rome um, right on the cusp of some of the worst persecution we can imagine. He says, be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you alone look into the bedrock of our hearts and our souls. Do we truly love you first? Do we truly love others as much as ourselves? Father, I pray that you would forgive us for being easily swayed into worshiping the false God of Christian nationalism. Lord, forgive us for not truly caring for the unreached, not truly loving your church, international, as we should. Lord, for looking the other way and not caring about the plight of the poor. Lord, I pray that you would um, give us a heart for you that would radiate out so that people would see us and would say, I may not understand what all these people believe. I might not even like all that they stand for, but these people love me. Lord, may the gospel smell beautiful in our culture in our society because of us. And we know that'll only happen when we look to you. Lord, I pray that you would give us truth and grace and resolve. And Lord, I pray that we would endure through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.